Hello, podcasters. Welcome back to Mr. Stroud's History Class. I'm going to begin, as I have been beginning for quite some time, with deserved shout-outs. Well-deserved shout-outs. And the first one goes to a former student, Mr. Nick Orange. Now, what caught my attention with Nick on this most recent shout-out was on his Facebook, he simply wrote, Listening to Mr. Stroud's podcast, highly recommended. Nick, you have no idea how I appreciate that recommendation. Because as all you podcasters know, none of you need listen to any of my podcasts at all. And the very fact that you do just means the world to me. When Nick left Kilgore College, he went to Texas Lutheran and majored in informational systems. He will receive a degree in December 2020, and he hopes to become a CEO and a philanthropist. Currently, he's serving as president of the student body and is the only president to serve multiple terms. Now, I'm going to repeat that. He is currently president of the student body and the only president to serve multiple terms. Now, Mick may be surprised, but I do still remember his essay on FDR's New Deal. And I will say it one more time, Nick was a tremendous student. He is now a tremendous individual, as he has always been, and I know that he is going to be highly successful because that's the type of person Nick is. Nick, thank you so much for being a student of Mr. Stroud's History Class, the podcast. I truly appreciate it. The next shout-out goes to Jennifer Starr. Now, Jennifer works at the Kilgore Print Shop, and that's where I send all of my emails, all of my information that I need to be printed, which saves me the price of a printer, ink, paper jams, paper, all of that stuff. I send it down to Jennifer at Kilgore Print Shop. Then I go down and pick it up, and Jennifer and I talk for a few minutes. And Jennifer, of course, is a podcaster. But listen to this. Podcasters, if you are ever trying to think of a way to entertain guests when they come to your house, try this. I was talking to Jennifer about the podcast and told her how much I appreciated her hearing it. And she told me the way they pick the podcast to listen to is she has three children that are podcasters. Three children that are podcasters. I am going to give you their names because they deserve to be named as shout-out podcasters. One is Abby. The other is Memory. They are each 12 years of age. We'll say that again. 12 years of age. And they pick out which podcast they want to listen to. Now, I would tell you those are the youngest podcasters that I know of, except for one other in the Jennifer family. And that other one is Ryan, who is only seven. So, Ryan, you are the youngest podcaster that I know of. And I want to tell you I am so proud of you, all of you. I mentioned to Jennifer that 
the number one city in the world. The podcasting city in the world that have played more of my podcast than any other city is none other than Portland, Oregon. Jennifer said, I have a friend in Portland and I told, I don't remember if it was a her or a he, but when I found out that Portland podcaster will be getting a shout out, and I don't know if she just binges Mr. Stroud's history class or he binges Mr. Stroud's history class, or if they share that information. Portland, Oregon is the podcasting city of the world. And I will tell you, unbelievable, this podcast is heard in more than 50 nations, should I say, around the world. So, Jennifer, Abby, Memory, and Ryan, and Nick, thank you each and every one for being outstanding podcasters and a member of Mr. Stroud's History Class, the podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, this podcast is going to have to do with a battle, or several battles over a period of several days. Now, I know I've said this once before, but I'm going to say it again, and again, and again. I cannot teach you these battles. I think I said that the first time, maybe on Fort Sumter, I know I said it on Mr. Lincoln's Bull Run lesson, and all you former students, I want you to remember the way I did it in class because I really enjoyed that. There I was sitting in front of you with the little pointer, laser pointer, an oversimplified battle map on the door. Door. I'm sorry, not door. The whiteboard. The whiteboard, not door. Now, I'm not going to ask you if you've ever done anything like that because what I did. Did I ever ask my students that? I don't know. The whiteboard. And there I was sitting in that easy chair in front of those students whose eyes were glued onto that whiteboard with the lines drawn on there. Maybe sometimes a name like Pickett, Mead. And then I would take that laser pointer and I would show the movements of the troops. Again, very oversimplified because I promise you that is the best way to learn about these battles. Now, if you want to check this out, I'm going to say, if you don't believe me, I know you believe everything I say because you are a tremendous podcaster. Do this. Get on the Internet. Get into that word that I hate, Google. And you just look at the maps of a battle. Gettysburg, Antietam. Or purchase the West Point Atlas of the Civil War and look at the highly detailed, so detailed I'm lost. I can't do that on a podcast. I promise you on the first battle of Bull Run, I literally sat here at my desk and I drew and I talked to give you instructions and I just, I just couldn't do it. 
So what I'm going to do is this. We're not going to worry so much about the movement of the troops because, like I say, I can't see you and you can't see me. So I'm going to give you just enough that you can say, well, you know hopefully more about the battle than you did before the podcast. But then, and this is what I did in class, I'm going to tell you things about the battle that I want you to remember. Okay, get get Valerie's line out. Get Valerie's line out. I'm not going to explain Valerie's line. If you don't know Valerie's line, keep going back to the podcast where I explain it. I'm going to tell you things that in many cases are not found in books. How do I know? I read books. I'm going to tell you many things that are not taught in class by the other professors because how do I know that? I know other professors and I at one time, shock, 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 I took classes. So what I'm going to do is tell you a few things about the battle that I would like for you to remember, okay? Now, to get started, trying to give you an analogy, if there were a Super Bowl of the Civil War in America, we're getting ready for it. Super Bowl, American football. Because what we have for the first time is we have the two best generals of that war and they're going to go against each other. We'll do this like football. For the blue team, the North, we have none other than General, we'll go and use his name, the one that he changed to, the one that's going to serve him, Ulysses S. Grant. What is Grant's record? You know, we got to do all of that, right? Just like they do in football. What is Grant's record? Hasn't lost a battle. I mean, you can go, you can go to Island Number 10, you can go to Fort Donaldson, you can go to Shallow, Vicksburg, Chattanooga. But guess what? Why do I say that? Why in the world does anyone say, guess what? There's no way you can guess what I'm going to tell you. Why do we do that? I don't know. I'm going to try to stop that. So how do I say this? Oh, this, 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 this. The Northern Army or the Potomac, what they said when they heard that General Grant had become the commander and was going to make his headquarters with the Army of the Potomac to go against the number one Confederate General Robert Edward Lee, the question they had was this. I'm sorry, not a question. Again, raise your hand if you ever misspoke like that. Nobody did, because I can't see any hands go up. This is what they said. When Grant was winning all of those battles, which famous general did he defeat? Albert Sidney Johnston, if you remember Shiloh, was the most prestigious, but he was killed. Still, so what they said among the officer corps of the Army of the Potomac was, he has yet to meet Bobby Lee. He has yet to meet Bobby Lee. 
General Grant, you're going up against the best. And I've read this in two contemporary accounts of that war, one by a Union soldier and another by a Confederate soldier. And what they said was this. No general ever won a battle. Those battles were won by the privates and the sergeants and the lieutenants and the captains. The Army of Northern Virginia of Robert Edward Lee is a Apparently, the best army that North America had ever seen up to that point, especially on this soil. You look at what that army has done. It virtually sounds impossible that they did that. And that's who Grant's going to go up against. He's going to have 120,000 men. 120,000 men. I'm not even going to go into, you know, how many times you feed them and that type of stuff. But these are combat veterans for the most part. There are some regiments that are new, recently recruited. But here's something that I think about once in a while when I read about this. The morale of the Army of the Potomac was as high as many of these correspondents, newspaper reporters had seen, including the ones that had been with that Army from day one of that war. These men are going to go into battle. They know what's going to happen in battle. There will be thousands that are dead. Thousands of the men that they see every day are going to be dead on the battlefield or their arms are going to be blown off and they're going to die screaming. Now, the contemporary term for having seen battle, the one most often used was they have seen the elephant. At one time I read the reason they said seen the elephant was because elephants were seen in a circus. Most of them had seldom ever seen a circus, but once you saw one and you saw a real elephant, you didn't forget it. And once you've been in battle, you're not going to forget it either. These men, for the most part, have seen the elephant. And they're starting to have thinner ranks. That's another thing I may have mentioned. When they recruited, they recruited an entire regiment and sent it to the front. They did not recruit replacements for the ones that had been in there since 1861. Good idea, bad idea, doesn't matter. That's the way they did it. And so the contemporary term was fat regiments. A fat regiment was one that had not been in battle. Many of these regiments were down literally to the size of regiments. I'm sorry, many of the regiments, I'm sorry, many of them were down to the size of a few companies. You could actually look at some of these regiments and see how many men they had present for duty in 1864. Originally, they are supposed to have 1,000. And I have read of these units that were down to like 200, 350 men. Oh, they've seen the elephant. And the morale was high. 
as high as any correspondent had seen in the entire war. Now, think of this, podcasters. As I've mentioned 16 times, they're going into battle. They know what's going to happen, and their morale is high. What's some of the reasons that their morale would be high? I want to tell you some of the things the Army has in 1864. One of the things that they have is they have battle honors on their battle flags. So their battle flag is basically the regimental flag. It could be the U.S. flag with a unit regiment on it. They got battle honors. The battle honors are the names of the battles they've been in. Today, those battle honors are streamers on the flag. And the officer responsible for battle honors was none other than George Britton McClellan. So they had them. Another thing that they had, and this is something that is in 1864 was virtually brand new. They had core badges, C-O-R-P-S. Core badges. Now get on the internet, look up Civil War Union core badges, and you can see what they look like. They wore them on their cap. They're cappy. They wore them on their uniform. Now, I'm going to say something about when I was in the Marine Corps, and the reason I'm doing this is simply because when I was in school, in college, named for the father of Texas, and its location is the oldest town in Texas, If you go to the library and you're very lucky, you're going to see one of my former students and a young lady that was given a shout-out, Candace Cloud. Candace Cloud. This professor, and uh, let let me say this. If I was in the Marine Corps and I was in Vietnam, you know that I've been around a while, okay? But you know what? When I went to college... I'm going to go and give you the date. Okay, don't don't freak out on me. Yes, Virginia, there was a 1968. I'd just gotten out of the Marine Corps, and many of my professors were veterans of World War II. And this one that I took in the summer, a graduate course, U.S. history, and we were covering things that I would be covering about the Great Depression, the Second World War, and he would say this, gentlemen, now at that time in the summer, it only took four students for a class to make. I want you to try to guess how much money you would have if you had a dollar for each student that went to graduate school in the summer and majored in history. There weren't many of us. Those in my class, we were all history teachers at public schools, and we went in the summer, we sort of went together. But that professor would say this, Gentlemen, since I lived through the period we're talking about, I feel obligated to tell you some things that you will not read in books. And at a time when I get to those things, I will tell you what he shared with us. You have to hang on. So since I mentioned these core badges, 
and the morale was lifted because of Corps badges and battle streamers. When I went in the Marine Corps, they no longer wore division patches. Oh, they had them in the mess hall. Oh, they had big boards of the division patches. First Division, or as we say, Marine Corps, First Mardiv, Second Mardiv. We had all the equipment. Honestly, I don't know if I had any more or less morale because of those patches or not. Army? I've seen soldiers, they got patches all over the place. What patches make you happy because you're going into battle where you might be killed? Or battle streamers on your flag? According to those who know more about it than I do, it did. Or was the morale high because of the new commander? Grant. Maybe had not met Bobby Lee, but Grant was the best. Now the reason I'm making kind of a big deal of this, Valerie's line, I have read and read and read and listened and listened and listened to men and teachers, female, male, you name it, talk about these men as if they were widgies. They, they weren't actually human. They were just numbers. They're going into battle again. Here's another thing. Some of the units were known as heavy artillery. At Fort Pella, and I'm going to do a little bit more on Fort Pella on a special podcast, some of the unit at Fort Pella were heavy artillery. Heavy artillery podcasters is too heavy to take out into the field. They're basically like siege guns. And so what they're doing with Grant and that 120,000 men is this heavy artillery, they're going to keep the name of that unit, but they're going to serve as infantry. Leave those cannons in Washington, D.C. you got 120,000 men. He's getting ready to go into battle against the best that the Confederates have. And with those 120,000 men, he's going to have Tremendous amount of supplies. He's going to have hardtack. He's going to have a herd of cattle. He's going to have weapons. Plenty of them. And that's another podcast that I want to do. How in the world do they have all these weapons when the Confederates hardly had any of them? I'm going to have to give a special podcast on that. And where did all these men come from? How did they get them? I'm going to have to do one on that also. Yes, 120,000 soldiers each carried full rations for three days, half rations for three more. Grant moves quickly. Unlike other Union generals, he did not wait and wait and wait for supplies. He moved quickly. He did that at Vicksburg. He did it the entire time that he was commander. going up against the Army of Northern Virginia, Robert Edward Lee. I'm giving you a little background on Robert Lee. Graduated second in his class. 
And remember that when I mentioned Grant was anywhere but second, only half of the class standing had to do with academics. There is a tradition among West Pointers, I don't know if they still have it now, that as far as a military career, it was actually better to finish lower in the class. And there is a special honor for the cadet that finishes last in the class. They were called goats. And then at one time, oh, and by the way, if you weren't going to be top in the class or something, they were they would actually try to be the last in the class, but you had to be careful because you, you did not want to flunk out. And there is a book that I'm going to try to get called The History of the Goats of West Point. But Lee was no goat. Second. I'm going to tell you what he did. I may have mentioned this before, but I think it's something worth mentioning again because I know in this world there are times you would just like to relax. And perhaps you would like to relax the way Robert Edward Lee relaxed. He would read the Iliad, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Iliad, in Greek and translate it to Latin. He did that to relax. And so, if you ever need to relax a little bit, you might want to do that also. Lee's army is about 65,000 men. The Battle of Gettysburg. I've read several things about the Battle of Gettysburg and how it affected Lee's army. One was that he did not really see that as that much of a defeat as we do now. After all, 2020 is hindsight. Except for defeating the Union Army there, he pretty well accomplished what he wanted. He had bloodied them awfully well. But listen to this. He'll never take the offensive again. Now when I say he won't take the offensive again, I'm talking about going into Maryland, going into Pennsylvania. I'm not saying he won't attack you because he will attack you. That's one thing he had learned. He learned that in the Mexican War. And he was the hero of the Mexican War. I believe one of my test questions in 1301, after doing an overview of the Mexican War, Lee was the hero of that war. And he had learned from old rough and ready Zachary Taylor you attack. And so Grant should know that Lee will attack him. Because Lee also knew this. In this war, given all the advantages of the North and the disadvantages of the South, they did not have a long time to get the North convinced that they could not win the war. You had to bloody them and bloody them good until they were convinced that they were not going to be able to defeat the South and it was not worth how many men had died and were going to die to do it. By 1864, given 2,000 a year, 600,000, 
and there's more to come. I want to mention this also. 1861, 1864, excuse me, not 1861, 1860. 61 Lincoln became president, 1860, the presidential election of 1864. If Lee can defeat Grant, a bloody the Union Army so badly that they will give up, there's a possibility that Lincoln will, will lose that election. And I will tell you this, if you were betting, if you went back in time and you bet on this election, you better bet that he is going to lose. Everybody believed that Lincoln was going to lose. There had not been a two-term president since Andrew Jackson. And so Lee knew every time I fire into a Union soldier and he goes down, that's one vote against Lincoln. And so these are the armies. The Confederate Army, at that time you could not find a better fighting army. They do not have the rations, but their morale was high. I want to mention one other thing about the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps I was in, not the Marine Corps now. When I was in the Corps, and I'll tell you when, 1964 to 1968, we did not have the best of equipment. We joked among ourselves that they gave all the new equipment to the Army, and once the Army used it up, then they issued it to the Marine Corps. Well, we took a pride in that. We could do more with half. The Army of Northern Virginia was the same way. They would have loved to have plenty to eat, plenty of coffee, plenty of everything, but they didn't. But they could do more with less than most armies could. Lee saw Grant's army coming at him. And so what he's going to do is he's going to pull back into an area known as the wilderness. And this wilderness is about 70 square miles. They call it the wilderness. It's where Chancellorsville was, where Fighting Joe got the worst defeat of the Union Army and Robert E. Lee got his best, best victory. It's also where Stonewall Jackson is killed. I say killed. You get on Civil War Jeopardy, that's where he was killed. Wounded by friendly fire, amputated the arm, pneumonia set in, and he died of pneumonia. Okay? And so Lee pulls back into the wilderness. And this was a Jeopardy question. It was called Civil War Nicknames. That was a category. And one of those nicknames was who was nicknamed Old Spade or Spade. That was Lee. Because if you remember back one of the first podcasts I did on the Civil War, 
when he got command, they called him Spade and Granny Lee because he moved so slow. He was always entrenching. And boy, he put in some defenses in the wilderness that were unbelievable. Because he's going to have Grant come at him. Now, there's no need to go to that wilderness because we're going in that wilderness. And I did read a few times the word jungle. I don't mean a jungle quite like, you know, what I hesitate. Here I go again. In Vietnam, we were in a jungle more than once. And I will promise you, in that jungle, you could barely see the Marine in front of you. Now, this was undercut brush, but I have heard the word jungle used. And what that's going to do, it's going to neutralize many of Grant's advantages. Artillery will be worthless. Can you imagine trying to shoot a cannon through that? So what Grant wants to do, he wants to get through the wilderness as quickly as possible. And attack Lee's right flank. Podcasters, I'd like to give you advice. Whether you want it or not, I'm going to give you some advice. And my former students know that I've said this before. It is something that is so true. And it's so simple. And yet time and time and time and time and time again, people forget it. Now this is going to be in a battle, but it could be anything. Listen to this, podcasters. Write it down if you're not driving. Write it down. If you're driving, say it ten times, and that way you'll own it for a while. Listen to me. Never underestimate your enemy. Never underestimate your enemy. Because General Meade assured Grant that Lee could not attack him in the wilderness. Grant is allowing Meade to command the Army of the Potomac. Meade was worried about that. He wrote to his wife, am I going to just be a messenger? And Grant went on and let him command the Army of the Potomac. And General Meade stopped the movement in the wilderness to wait on supply wagons. Why? He told Grant, Lee cannot attack us in the wilderness. Does anyone want to guess what happened? Lee attacked him. Lee attacked him. Both sides. You talk about desperate fighting, people. It was desperate fighting. They were in that wilderness, in that jungle, and they could barely see the enemy in front of them. Could not really see the soldiers on your left and your right, and the one you saw in front of you was your enemy. And so there was a lot of stabbing with bayonets and shooting at point-blank range. And they fought for hours. Many years ago, I taught an honors class on the Vietnam War 
And one of the things that the college gave us to do, gave me to, that I could do, was they gave me $100, $100 podcasters, to pay a musician who was a Vietnam veteran to come to Kilgore College, come to my classroom, and sing songs about Vietnam. $100. And he did. Name Michael Martin. On YouTube, you might be able to find some of his songs. But one of them, this is what I'm getting to right here in the wilderness when they're fighting like bayonets, close range. And one of the songs that Michael Martin sang, he said in the song, in the middle of the fight, it don't matter who's wrong and who's right. I don't think either side had ever seen fighting like that. And on the first day, nobody really had an advantage over the others. Another thing that I'm proud of, Valerie's line, get it out. In every battle, I would tell you at least one soldier who was awarded a Medal of Honor. And I want to do this because I've said it before, I'm going to say it again. These are not little Ouija's. These are humans. And when I was growing up in the South, we were taught the Yankees were nothing but cowards. That's all they were. But I'd like to point out, nothing could be further from the truth. I'm going to, I'm going to, what do I do? I don't know why, I'm going to do this, okay? The day I left for the Marine Corps, my grandmother told me, don't you ever make a friend with a Yankee. My two best buddies in the Marine Corps were both Yankees. Cowards, the very first Marine who was still alive to get the Medal of Honor for Vietnam, Robert O'Malley, was from New York City. They were not cowards. And on that desperate fighting on the 5th of May, there was a first lieutenant by the name of Abel Buckles, 11th U.S. Infantry. Now, the U.S. Infantry are regulars. Normally you have a state like 1st Pennsylvania, 23rd Virginia. He's a regular. And when the fighting was going on, 1st Lieutenant Buckles, suffering from an open wound, carried the regimental colors until again wounded. On July 23rd, 1897, long after, he received in the mail his Medal of Honor. Suffering from an open wound, carried the regimental colors until wounded again. The first day's fighting, May the 5th, inconclusive. Except the number of men killed and wounded. Now, podcasters, I want to tell you it is so difficult for me to tell you everything that I want to tell you. When I told you that I cannot teach you this battle, I cannot teach you any battle, the way you're going to learn about battles, 
the best way is uh, called a book. I went to Amazon, looked up Battle of the Wilderness books. I counted more than 10. More than 10. I ordered two of them. Podcasters, if you've listened to all these podcasts, you know you know full well there's something about me and these swords. I want to tell you, there are people here in Kilgore, there are students that would ask me, not many, Mr. Stroud, why do you like those swords so much? I have a brother. I've got a twin brother, okay? We're identical twins. So you say, well, how can we tell you apart? And I say, that's simple. I'm the better looking one. He doesn't collect anything. He gathers books. He reads a lot. But to book collect? It'd be like collecting John Grisham first editions. He doesn't collect. And so if people have never asked me, Mr. Stroud, what do you like about that sword? Why do you like those swords? They probably at least thought it. I will be honest, I have struggled and struggled to come up with a good answer for that. And I know of another collector that answered it for me. He too collects, and people ask him, why does he like that? And this is the answer. This is my answer. If you were a collector, perhaps, you ready? I don't know. I just do. Why do you like those so? I don't know. I just do. But podcasters, I hope you know by now how much I've learned because of collecting swords, especially inscribed swords. I'm going to tell you something. I could do this as a podcast secret. We know about podcast secrets. Let's do a podcast secret. You know, zip those lips and pinky swear. I'm working on another book. I love these swords so much. Hide. Why me? I don't know. I just do. Now, when I did inscribe Union Swords, I promised the people that bought them when they were at my table, I'm not going to reprint it. I'm not going to reprint it. And I had more than one, and they would say, well, you know, I don't even know if I'm going to read this book. And I said to them right there, I said, that is unimportant. The important thing is to buy the book. Then you've got it if you ever want to read it. And I told them it would never be reprinted, and I keep my word. 1,500 of them sold, numbered. They've been sold out. Let's see, that book came out, I believe, in 1983. They were sold out by 1987. You can find them on Amazon. Every now and then you can find them on other book sites. I'm proud of that book. Now there are many sword books, but I want to tell you, mine is unique. I'm not saying that just because I wrote it. Mine is unique. Why do they present swords? And then approximately 45 individuals. And then the sword in combat, then returning the sword. 
I'm keeping my word. I'm not going to reprint it. And then there's sword and revolver presentations as reported by the Boston Daily Evening Transcript, 1861. Why in the world that's not a movie? I have no idea. So what my plan is, is I'm going to combine those two. Not the entire book. The reason for the presentations of the swords. Some of the swords that have not appeared in that other book with the story of those soldiers and then perhaps the sword in combat and the returning of the swords. Now what am I getting to? I'm getting to this. One of the books that I got was, let's see if I can find it. Oh, it's right here. It's right here. Oh my gosh, I'm going to hold it up. Can you see that? No, you can't see it. It's a photograph of a Union colonel. And the name of the book, Rufus R. Dawes, D-A-W-E-S, An Officer in the Iron Brigade. This man and that unit saw so much battle. Antietam, Gettysburg, the wilderness. This, listen to this, podcasters. The reason I got the book was they got on you know, some of the books you can search inside, and I found that he wrote in there how much a sword cost. How much a sword cost? How much did it cost? I've got it written down here somewhere. Oh, goodness. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where in the world is it? Let me look for just, oh my gosh, I'm going to find it. I believe I have found it. How much did it cost? That sword cost that officer $35. I had to find it on here. $35 for that sword and sash. In 2015, that $35 would be a little bit more than $3,000. That's why I got this book. When I write about these things, I like to footnote, tell where I got that information. But once I saw that, once I got the book, and this is what I'm getting, this is where I'm going with this. They were in the Battle of the Wilderness. And I read in there what you will not read in a textbook. I promise you that. You want humans? You get one of these books written by one of the officers that was there. Or an enlisted man. I learned more about the Battle of the Wilderness by reading that book. One historian that I read said that battles have signature events. For example, if you ever wanted to play... Civil War Jeopardy. We could be even more specific. Name the battle by its signature event of this Civil War. These are just a few. One is civilians watch the battle. First Bull Run. Another one, Miller's Cornfield, Burnside's Bridge, Antietam. Another one, Pickett's Charge. Now, if you've listened to the Gettysburg podcast, remember 
It is now known as Pickett's Charge, although you do know it was actually Longstreet's Charge until after the war and after Lee died. But Pickett's Charge. Now, the Battle of the Wilderness. Fire. This, not, not, this is not ready, aim, fire. This is fire. They're in the woods. When you're given the order to fire, you pull the trigger and guess what? Fire comes out the end of the barrel. You do that with thousands of men and the woods caught on fire. Podcasters, men were being burned alive. Union and Confederate, you could hear the screams. Then their pouches with cartridges, black powder cartridges, started to explode, and the mini balls went into them. Others took their revolvers and their rifles as best they could and committed suicide rather than be burned alive. Now, while all of that is going on, there was a lieutenant by the name of John H. Patterson, 11th U.S. Infantry, under heavy fire of the advancing enemy, picked up and carried several hundred yards to a place of safety, a wounded officer of his regiment who otherwise would have been burned in the forest. He wasn't the only one. In the Battle of the Wilderness, there would be 23 Medals of Honor, and there were others that did this too. I had to give a program not long before, okay, 2020, COVID-19, self-quarantine. Before we were told to do that, I gave a program at the Lions Club, and I told them about the Medals of Honor, and I was amazed at how many Forrest Gumps there were in the Union Army that picked up wounded men and carried them off. He did that. And many years later, July 23, 1897, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. Now you heard me say this. Why did it take so long? 1864, 1897. Do the math. I have no answer to that, but I have a speculation. The official records of the war, the War of the Rebellion, are going to be published, I believe it was in the late 1880s. And I think that where you would find these men doing this would be in the reports of those regiments, and then someone in Congress decided to award them the Medal of Honor. Other than that, I have no idea. Now here's something else, podcasters. I hope you've never seen a forest fire up close and personal. Some of you probably have. I've seen it on the news. How do those things go out? And yet I can find nothing, nothing about it except this Medal of Honor. I got a couple of books just to find out what happened with that fire. Did it just go out? Did they stop and how did they get it out? And in many of the accounts, for example, the, the Wisconsin officer in the Iron Brigade doesn't even mention it. But that was there, and men burned alive. That was on the second day of fighting. And then on May the 6th, 
I'm sorry, the first day, May the 5th. On May the 6th, there's more desperate fighting. Confederates being pushed back by Hardee's Corps. Now, one of the things when Grant was going into the wilderness that he wanted to know was where was Longstreet's Corps? Longstreet now is the best officer, the best corps commander that Lee has. Now, I don't know if, if you got Stonewall Jackson still alive. Flip it up. Which one's going to be the best? Stonewall Jackson, of course, is more famous for what I told you in the Gettysburg podcast. And what he found was that Longstreet was not with Lee. He was at Gordonsville coming toward the wilderness. Well, while this fighting was going on, and there were attacks by the Union Army, and Confederates started retreating, Lee started to panic. It could be the end. And so something happened, and this, to me, could be a signature event of the Battle of the Wilderness. It was also painted in, excuse me, not in, it's in the book of paintings by Don Trahoney. And it's simply titled, Lee to the Rear, sometimes Lee's Texans. At the time that this happened, it was quite famous. It was carried in many papers with all types of illustrations. And what happened was this. Oh, and by the way, years ago, at Hillsborough, attending the Confederate Symposium, a historian, he was rather young, I don't mean he was like a little kid or anything, he told this story. And he got so emotional, he literally was fighting back tears. I'm going to tell you, there are some of us that can get into some of the stories like that. There's many different versions of what I'm going to tell you. One of the books on the Battle of the Wilderness that I bought, just because of this, I wanted to find out what happened with that fire, and if I do find out, I will tell you in another podcast. But also, this Lee's Texans, it said it has an excellent paper in this book. It's a series of essays by men who study the battle of the wilderness, and it's in a chapter called Lee's Texans. I read it, and I could not tell that it had any more information than what I'm going to tell you, except there's several different versions. But basically, this is it. If we were in class, this is the way I would tell it. As the Confederates are starting to retreat and the Union are starting to advance, Lee becomes very nervous, and his famous horse, not the only one he had, but his famous one, help you out on Jeopardy, Traveler. Lee spurred Traveler, and he started forward. And as he saw the Union soldiers coming and the Confederates starting to retreat, he saw Confederate soldiers there, and he rode up to one of them, a colonel, excuse me, a general. And that general is who Gregg County is named for. This was General John Gregg. And he asked, what troops are these? And General Craig said, excuse me, General Gregg said, they're Texans, Hood's Texas Brigade. Although Hood has now been promoted in the Confederacy, the original commander normally is going to have his name associated from then on. 
and Lee said Texans always move them. Have them charge and give them the cold steel. And tell them Lee's eyes are up on them now. Those Texans started giving rebel yells and then they saw something they couldn't believe. Lee spurred Trafford and he started in as if he too was going to charge the Federals. Now I'm going to tell you something. Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident all men are created equal. Okay. But it doesn't say that all officers are created equal. And this is something they said. Lee was too valuable to be killed in that battle. And so a private by the name of G, G-E-E, 5th Texas Regiment, grabbed Traveler's reins and said, Lee to the rear. We're not going in until Lee goes to the rear. Just then, General Longstreet comes riding up. And he tells Lee, you have no business up here. I'm paraphrasing. If you move back, I'll go in there. Lee moved back, and Longstreet's corps charged and started pushing the Federals back. And then, another signature event. How many signature events can we get in this battle? OMG, there's a bunch of them. An OMG podcast. That's oh my granny. As they're pushing them back, Longstreet and his corps commanders are coming down the Orange Plank Road, and he is shot by friendly fire. Battles are confusing. The mini ball, mini is the name of an officer, and I mispronounce it, it's however you would say that in French, 58 caliber, went through his shoulder and through his throat through his shoulder and through his throat. He rose up and then he comes off the horse. They get the ambulance over there. A general that was riding next to him was killed. They get him into an ambulance. There is a discussion on YouTube between two Civil War historians, both I'm sure Confederate sympathizers. And this to me is silly. I'm sorry, this is silly. Which would have been more devastating? Stonewall Jackson's friendly fire in Chancellorsville, a Longstreet friendly fire in the wilderness, and my simple answer is, I'd say Jackson because he died. Longstreet didn't. It's a miracle. Shot through the shoulder and through the throat, but he will be out of the army until October. Of 64. That's one of the things that we need to emphasize in these battles. Officers and enlisted men that are good are taken out. He will not return to October. And he will never talk the same again. I was thinking about how am I going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. One way is I am going to imitate James Longstreet after he recovered from his throat wound. All right, after he recovered from his throat wound, I'm going to, I'm going to, you ready? I was never ever, 
you hear that? I was never able to talk above a whisper again. One more time, I'm going to be a little bit louder, although James Longstreet couldn't. He was never able to talk above a whisper again. Another signature event. Desperate fighting. When the battle ended, Grant has a newspaper reporter come by his tent. And what he's going to be doing is he tells Grant that he's going to try to get through the wilderness and get back to Washington. And the civilians would like to hear something about the battle. Now, here I am trying to say six things at one time. There were correspondents. They were sitting around a campfire. I mean, you got a hundred thousand men podcast. They know you're there. And one of them, of the correspondents, he said that he would give a thousand dollars if anyone can get through and get word back to Washington. The podcast, I'm going to tell you, a thousand dollars, my goodness gracious. The average blue-collar worker made about 300 a year. Where in the world are they getting this money? Now, the reason it's so dangerous is because there is a famous cavalryman confederate in the woods by the name of John Singleton Mosby. And his name, John Singleton Mosby, would be the answer to Civil War jeopardy if you saw he was the Grey Ghost. He was known as the Grey Ghost. I believe the unit officially for 43rd Battalion of Virginia Cavalry, they were partisan rangers. Partisan rangers is what they called them in the south. In the north, they were called guerrillas. They were not officially attached to the Confederate Army. John Sinkin of Mosby was a legend, so much so that when I was young, we would watch on Saturday, I believe it was on Saturday, we would watch the Grey Ghost on television. He had a series, and I will tell you, you can find it on YouTube. And he had the strangest salute I've ever seen, but that's the way Hollywood was. I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going to tell you again about what I'm going to tell you right now when we get to Reconstruction. He was not all in favor of slavery whatsoever. And after the war, when these lost cause writers started writing that slavery had nothing to do with this war, he said, I cannot believe they're doing that because that's all I heard about. That's all I heard about. But the gray ghost was there. Now, did I mention earlier that there's going to be some swords? Two associated with Mosby, the gray ghost. One of them is a sword. In my collection, my meager collection, and probably the last one I'll ever buy, and it was a, it was, it is an 1840 heavy cavalry saber. Officers, officers, those are fairly rare because there were not that many officers 
and it was inscribed that it was presented to Captain Abram Chrome, Company G, 5th New York Cavalry. At Chancellorsville, Chrome was wounded twice fighting Mosby's Rangers. Now remember, why do I like this stuff? I don't know, I just do. With this sword, and I'm going to tell you where I got it from, and you, if you ever will have some time, go to the horse soldier Gettysburg. you got to put Gettysburg or you're going to go to the movies. And you look at the swords. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to brag on them. They helped me out. I bought that sword about six years ago, and I just, on a whim, I sent them an email and said, do you still have the photographs? Podcasters, in less than 30 minutes, they sent me those photographs. They are magnificent photographs. And they will be in my book, and they may very well be in an article. Because this is what I got. Not only did I have that steel scabbard inscribed, presented it to Captain Abram Chrome, Company G, 5th New York Cavalry. He was in the hospital and had to be put in a chair and carried outside where his company was waiting in formation. I have the exact words that were read in the presentation of this sword to him. Now, one of the things that I was mentioning earlier in the books, why did they present swords? Why did they present swords? Well, one is because, like the Iron Brigade officer Dog said, it cost a lot of money. You had to have one. Oh, and incidentally, sidebar, the Marine Corps, the only organization I'm aware of in the entire world where officers are required to purchase swords, and I did find out they will have their name put on the blade. And I asked an officer why. This was after I got out of the Corps, of course. He said, that way you couldn't borrow somebody they made sure you bought one of them. That's one of the reasons they presented swords, to help men get ready to go to war. But in that speech, which will be in the book and in the article verbatim, and I have to paraphrase, I don't have it in front of me, what better way to show our admiration to a gallant officer than the presentation of this sword. Oh my granny, there it is. He was wounded. He could not, re- he could not stand, he, he gave a speech to another soldier to have him read, and I've got that also. But there's another Mosby too, Association Sword. There's another one. And this one is in my inscribed Union Sword book. And it is on page. One of the sections in the inscribed Union Sword book are silver, silver-hilted swords, hilt-big grips. They're beautiful. Beautiful. You could probably Google presentation swords of the Civil War and see some of them. But one of the things when I told people about these, they, question, they weren't actually carried in battle, were they? And I answered, well, they were made to kill people, but they were expensive. I mean, literally in 1864, it could have cost $1,000 or more. But in my book, Inscribed Union Swords, which I am, again, very, very proud of, on page 128, Lori Dorsett, 
who has a copy of that book, and it's the only podcaster I know that's got it, is a silver-hilted sword that's in the museum at the Smithsonian. It's in my book. Now, this is what's inscribed on it, okay? Presented by Company L, 1st New York Veteran Cavalry, as a mark of their esteem to Colonel C.W. Bryant. Below that on the scabbard, captured March 10th, 1864, presented by Lieutenant A.E. Richards to Lieutenant Colonel John Singleton Mosby. And then recaptured September 1864 by the 13th New York Cavalry, Colonel H.S. Gavinsforge. So, yes, they were. Also, in my book that I'm so proud of, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, in returning the swords, there was another silver-hilted sword that was captured by a Confederate. And he gave that to his mother, and when after the war, the men wanted to take that sword, not take it, ask her to give it back to give to the whip, and she was not about to do that. It is amazing. To me, the story of these swords, and here's another thing, podcasters, the history that I have learned by researching these swords, to really get into battles and have fun with them, fun with a battle, you know what I'm talking about. If you have a reason, if you have a reason, like the 5th New York Cavalry, because they have the captain's sword. You'll want to read everything you can about that unit. Everything you can. That's how I got into a lot of this. Men know history. Women know history that do not know about the swords. Those of us who collect these swords and other artifacts know history. We've come through it to a different we've come to it through a different route. The New York newspaper correspondent who's going to try to make it back to Washington goes to see Grant. And he tells him, I'm going to try to make it through. Grant normally did not care a whole lot for newspaper correspondence. And he said, the correspondent said to General Grant, they, meaning the civilians, they would like to have some news about what's going on. Now, podcasters, I try to help you. If you're looking for vocabulary words, contemporary words to try to express something, here is one I've never heard anywhere else except what I'm going to tell you right now. Now, you may have heard it a million times. I haven't. This is, I think, a verbatim quote. Grant looked up at him and said, You may tell them that things are going swimmingly down here. Swimmingly down here. Work that into your vocabulary. When someone asks, How are you doing? Say, I'm doing swimmingly. The correspondent started out of the tent 
and he felt a hand on his shoulder. And Grant said, do you expect to see the president? And the correspondent, who by the way had been in battle, at Fredericksburg he lost two fingers in combat. He said, yes sir, I'm going to try to get to the president. And Grant said, if you see the president, tell him there will be no turning back. Podcasters. Podcasters. Those words become famous. Tell him there will be no turning back. The correspondent made it through. That's exactly what Lincoln wanted. Because every other Union officer that commanded the Army of the Potomac in the entire war when they got treated by Robert E. Lee like Grant had gotten treated, they ran back to Washington. Oh, there were casualties. One of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War. And those casualties were... For the Confederates, 11,033 killed, wounded, missing. Now let me remind you what Lee learned just before this battle. No more men are available. No more reinforcements. Every time a soldier goes down, you can't get a replacement. 11,033. Grant, Union, 17,666. Now remember, I've told you before, I believe I've told you, my 8th graders always wanted to know what was the score. There was a the score. But let me remind you, you can't always tell who won the battle by the number of casualties. In the Civil War, both sides agreed that whoever retreated lost the battle. Grant decided to disengage on May the 7th, the army started leaving, and those Union soldiers at high morale was down at the very bottom. They're going to retreat like they've done time and a time and a time. And when you get a chance, go to YouTube and you listen to the song, Richmond is a Hard Road to Travel. And as that army was disengaging and moving, the spirits of those Union soldiers was as low as you could get. And then something happened. Something happened that no Union commander of that army had done the entire war. I'm going to title this Grant's Right Turn. Now, right has two meanings. It could be direction. It's going to go to the right. It could also mean correct. All of a sudden, that army of 100,000 men started seeing they were going to the right. They were not retreating. This was simply the first round. And in the book I got about the 6th Wisconsin and that, it is amazing to read about 
what men who were there, the way they express it. But I want to tell you what he said. He said all of a sudden they started hearing cheering. Yelling and cheering, and he didn't know what they were cheering about. I'm going to tell you what they were cheering about. They weren't retreating. They were not retreating. And thousands of men started cheering. And then one started to sing. I know from having read, this is the way it worked. One soldier starts to sing. It's a song they all know. Then another one joins in, then another one, and three or four more, and pretty soon you have hundreds of men singing. I tried to find this on YouTube, and all I can get is drumming pipes. I cannot get anyone singing it. But I guarantee you, I bet you some of you podcasters know it. It's an old hymnal. And is it appropriate for what these men have been through? Hundreds now were singing, Ain't we glad to get out of the wilderness? Ain't we glad to get out of the wilderness? The casualties, one of the bloodiest battles of that war. 17,666 Union soldiers killed, wounded, and missing in one day. The enemies of Lincoln in the north and the enemies of Grant gave him another nickname. Butcher. Butcher Grant. But I'm going to tell you something. And have I even said today about reading the ING, learning the ING? Podcasters. As much as Lincoln hated to lose that many people, and he did, I'm going to tell you again about him in the telegraph office where they got the reports of the casualties. And as they were pouring in, I believe it was Gettysburg, Lincoln was telling jokes. And somebody kind of lost his temper and said, Mr. President, how can you joke at a time like this? And Lincoln looked at him and said, if I don't laugh, I'll surely cry. So please don't you ever think that these casualties didn't matter. Also, remember presidential election? I'm going to tell you something I've read in only one book. Of all the books I've read, Valerie's Line. I'm going to give it a title. I'm going to call it. Okay? Fredericksburg Math. Fredericksburg, you remember, was a disaster for the North. How in the world could anybody do that? Oh, my gosh. There's something else, podcasters. I'm going to go out on a limb, a historical limb. I'm going to say, you do not know that an attack is suicidal until after it fails. The analogy of football play. Worst play I've ever seen. How in the world, what were they thinking? You don't know that until after the play has been run. If it's a quarterback sneak on your own one-yard line and you go 99 yards for a touchdown, that is brilliant. He captured, captured. If he's tackled for a safety, what were they thinking? Pickett's charge, as they now call it, was not suicidal. You want a suicidal attack? Get the movie, Saving Private Ryan, and you watch the first 20 minutes of that beach on Normandy. What were they thinking? You talk about a suicidal attack. Iwo Jima, read flags of our fathers. 
podcasters, you talk about bloodbaths. How in the world, what were they thinking? Fredericksburg math. I only read it one time. As much as Lincoln hated losing all of these people, there was a bright side of that bloodbath. And that was these men in blue uniforms can be replaced. Lee's can't. Podcasters, it's just a matter of time. But that time will be bloody. And you have got to have people in the North that are willing to stay with it. And remember, we have people in the North whose sons and husbands and brothers are in that army. And when they took that right turn, they're going to another battle. And that army's morale was boosted and they were cheering and they were singing, ain't we glad to get out of the wilderness. Another way of looking at it, did Grant lose the battle? Or was it just the first round? Football analogy, the first quarter. When Lee saw what Grant was doing, I promise you, he had to think, oh my granny, this is different. And that's it. Grant vs. Lee, the wilderness, and a ghost. I will see you next time on Mr. Stroud's History Class, the podcast.